Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. So we're continuing our series of questions God asks us. Um, And this week we're talking about this passage that presents a choice, right? So how do you react when you're faced with a choice? Uh, For me... I don't know if you guys know the Enneagram, but for me, I'm an Enneagram 9 type personality type, and that usually manifests in me having a hard time with choices, (laughs) Uh, because I don't often even know what I want, right? Like, take last week, for example. So I decide I'm going to order out and not cook tonight, and I open up Grubhub, and there before my eyes are dozens and dozens of choices of things to eat, right? So there are, you know, Chinese food, tacos, burgers, salads, Thai, Indian, Middle Eastern, etc. And I think I sat there for like 30 minutes just scrolling up and down and looking at menus while my stomach started growling louder and louder and I was getting grumpier and grumpier. Can anyone relate to that? <laughs> choices are hard, but especially choices that really impact your life, right? Like it didn't matter what I chose to eat in the end, like... I would have been fine with any of them. But uh, this choice, like, it really makes a difference if your choice is changing the direction of your life, right? If the choice of going to college, which college to go to, um, which job to take after college. A lot of you guys are in that, thinking about that right now. Um, Or even who to marry or what religion to follow. These decisions can be even more difficult because, like me and my lunch or dinner, we don't always know what we want. We don't know what's best. Um, and it makes it really hard. So today we see Jesus calling Peter and his disciples to make a choice, one that would completely change their lives. So if I was there, I probably would have been the one in the back taking notes, like observing Jesus, making sure that he was the right guy to follow, uh, you know, trying to get as much experience as possible before aligning myself fully with him. But and, and Jesus did give his disciples time, right? But he didn't let them mull it over to oblivion. <laughs> like, he called them to make a decision about who they believed that he was. And I think we can learn a lot from his question and just from their answers. Um, and uh, we can also learn something from Peter's statement of belief in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah or the Christ. Those two words are, like, interchangeable. But before we look at who Jesus is, we have to look at who he's not. So first, now get ready for some alliteration. First, we're going to look at the missed Messiah. And then secondly, at the manifest Messiah, who scripture reveals Jesus to be. And finally, since I couldn't think of any more M words, we are just going to ask the question, who do we say that he is? So first, let's look at the missed Messiah. We're going to see that the original hearers of Jesus didn't understand his character or role. And I think we too often like rely on our experiences or um, the culture around us or other people's thoughts and teaching to see who God is instead of actually going to him and actually going to his word. Um, Kind of what Jacob was saying earlier, we always have to go to God. Um, When Jesus was alive, and especially here in the middle of his ministry, Um, Very few people believed him to be the Messiah. In fact, there were a lot of differing opinions, including these three that the disciples say back in the passage. So they 
when he asked them, you know, who do people say that I am? They said, John the Baptist, Elijah, or a prophet. So let's unpack those real quick. If you aren't familiar, John the Baptist was actually Jesus' cousin, and he preached and baptized people by the Jordan River. Um, he told everyone, I'm not the Christ, um, he's coming, and he had already actually been killed at this point. He was beheaded, which is super great. So clearly, like, Jesus is not John the Baptist, but still, some people were saying that. Next, um, Elijah was a long-dead prophet in the Old Testament who was super close to God, and he was believed to be coming back in some sort of literal or spiritual way because of a prediction at the end of Malachi, which is at the end of the Old Testament. So the very last revelation from God that the Jewish people had at the time was this verse. And... Um, an angel and Jesus, though, had already said that John the Baptist was the one who fulfilled this. And he was going to take up the mantle of Elijah and announce the coming of the Messiah. So that had already happened at this point. But still, people were saying, hey, maybe Jesus is the return of Elijah. And then finally, many people assumed that Jesus was just, you know, another good prophet. Um, similar to maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah. Uh, Israel used to have prophets who were specially like anointed by God to speak God's words to the people. And it had actually been 400 years. Malachi was the last prophet, 400 years ago. And so it must have been kind of exciting to think like, oh, maybe there's a new, a new prophet on the scene. So all of this would be saying like in our day that Jesus was another great teacher um, or, or, or prophet of days past, maybe thinking of like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, maybe Frederick Douglass, or maybe even a current preacher that we love in RUF, <laughs> Tim Keller. Um, but many people today, and I'm sure that you guys have encountered this belief, or maybe you're, maybe this is where you are in your heart as well. Um, many people believe that Jesus was, you know, he was just that. He's a good man. Um, he's a good teacher. He said some great things, but he's not more important than that. Um, and I think today we're going to see that this perspective isn't actually wrestling with what Jesus said about himself. So it's missing who he is as the Messiah. So now let's look at Peter's statement of who Jesus is. His answer is, you are the Christ. What does he mean by that? We see in Matthew 16, another retelling of this story, that... Peter's confession of belief is commended by Jesus, right? He says, um, he praises him for his faith, and he tells him, you're going to be a firm foundation for the church. So we know this is a really important moment. And having lived and ministered alongside Jesus, Peter and the other disciples, they'd seen him do so much stuff. They'd seen him heal, cast out demons, um, teach with authority, not like, the, not like the Pharisees and the scribes of the day, um, and even forgive sins. And Jesus' words and person and just works were magnetic, right? People, it was clear to those who he was close to that he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And yet, many people at the time had this idea of what the Christ, the Messiah, who he was going to be. They believed that when he came, the Messiah would overthrow the Roman rule of the time and become the king of the new era of Israel, similar to King David. They believe that he was going to bring back, um, you know, 
be this political messiah, a revolutionary to bring Israel back to these glory days when God dwelled with them and when they had their own king and when they ruled their own land. So it seems like Peter is kind of in this camp as well. He didn't get the full picture. Look at me with a couple of verses later. He actually, like Jesus starts talking about his upcoming death and Peter, the same guy who had just claimed <laughs> that Jesus, like your God's anointed, he begins to rebuke him. And I tried to imagine like, what would this be like? So he might've said something like, no, no, Jesus, surely you can't mean that. Like, don't be so negative. What do you mean you have to die? That's ridiculous. You're safe with us. Nothing will happen to you. Just tell us what the next phase of the plan is. Let's go. And so he probably meant well, right? But in doing so, he missed Jesus's real purpose as their Messiah. I began to think about this in our day. Like, how do we insert Jesus into our political ideology or slap the face of Christ onto our American politics? Because I think we see it on both sides. Um, of our two-party system in America, right? We have this habit of assigning God to our side and our side only. And it's really destructive. Um, we would love to think that just because we're a Christian and we voted a certain way that, like, Jesus would too. And there's more nuance to that. Like, I'm not saying that both sides are equally moral or equally right on every issue. But in our attempt to gain the higher moral ground, um, have we evaluated that Maybe Jesus stands outside of our predetermined partisanship. Um, maybe his purpose is bigger than to just fix America. So I think there are many ways that we miss or mistake the Messiah today. Um, another example would be for those of us who have been believers for a while, maybe we tend to think of Jesus as maybe a begrudging savior or a monarch from afar, right? He saved us, but he doesn't really care that much about us. Um, when we think of God, he feels distant, maybe more interested in how we live instead of who we are. And it's hard to reconcile the Jesus that we see in the scriptures and these stories with the experience that we have of God in our daily life. So we've looked at the missed Messiah, how Jesus' true identity was mistaken. But secondly, Let's look at the manifest Messiah. Who does Jesus reveal himself to be who really challenges our perceptions? Humans are consistently trying to remake God in our own image. Instead of recognizing him as he reveals himself to be. And so we've looked at, you know, a few ways that people do this, did this at the time Jesus was here. But and then also how we do it today. And now I think we're going to see that Jesus is this like counterintuitive savior. He's not who we immediately want him to be, right? We want him to be flashy and important um, and at the head of state and everything. But he, he lived and died in humility. So let's look at who Jesus reveals himself to be, not the hero we deserve, but the hero we need. And yes, that is a Batman reference. We see in scripture that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is one reason that his disciples and his followers were so drawn to him, right? But he didn't just fulfill passages like 2 Samuel 7 about the Christ's majesty and kingship. He also fulfilled the passages that talk about his humiliation and his sacrifice. And these two types of prophecies, instead of being two different people, they actually are both fulfilled in Jesus. 
He is both a king and a sufferer. So let's look back at Mark 8, 31. Jesus is teaching his disciples that his ultimate purpose, what his ultimate purpose on earth is. And it's not to immediately turn the tide of political leadership in Israel. It's not to organize a revolution or a social advocacy movement. It's not to rise in strength to the public eye, returning Israel to its former glory. Instead, it's to suffer, to be rejected by both God and people, to die, and in three days to rise again. And and then ultimately, he's going to work complete holistic healing over all of creation. So in his first coming, instead of conquering Rome, Jesus would conquer humanity's greatest enemy, sin, death, and Satan. Isaiah 53 is something I try to read every year around Easter. It's one of the most descriptive prophecies in the Old Testament of the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. It describes him as God's servant, someone who would be killed for his people's sins. So let's look at this paraphrase of Isaiah 53. Um, It's from the message. The servant was looked on, down on, and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum, but the fact is it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We are all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Later, this passage would come true just as Jesus said here in Mark. Jesus would be silent in the face of accusations, found innocent of guilt and unjustly condemned to death, tortured, mocked, beaten, bloodied by the very people that he created, killed in the most sadistic way known at the time, alongside criminals, and most of all, was not only forsaken by men, but forsaken by God, his father. All this so that the unrighteous could have access to God, so that we, the sheep who had gone astray, could be made righteous. Are you uncomfortable yet? I get a little uncomfortable around this. We, we don't like to think about this part quite as much, right? Like we turn our eyes away from the suffering servant. But the glorious awful, horrifying truth is Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God for our sins willingly on behalf of his people. I'm going to quote from uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, a few times tonight, so you should, guys should definitely check it out if you haven't yet. But he talks about this idea. He's trying to illustrate God's wrath towards sin, and he says, 
reflecting on what we feel toward, say, the perpetrator of some unthinkable act of abuse toward an innocent victim, gives us a taste of what God felt towards Christ as he, the last Adam, stood in for the sins of God's people. The righteous human wrath we feel, the wrath we would be wrong not to feel, is a drop in the ocean of the righteous divine wrath the Father unleashed. Heavy stuff. Not only that, but Jesus was God. This wrath didn't just manifest in the painful physical death. It manifested in spiritual death as well. That of separation of God the Son from God the Father. Another quote from Ortland says, When communion with God had been one's oxygen, one's meat and drink throughout one's life, without a single moment of interruption by sin, to suddenly bear the unspeakable weight of all our sins, who could survive that? To lose the depth of communion was to die. The great love at the heart of the universe was being rent into. The world's light was going out. So as I said, Easter is coming up. It can be easy to focus on the fun, the Easter eggs, chocolate, going to seeing family, things like that. And we should. We should definitely celebrate that. But in that celebration, are we missing the real reason behind Easter? The true reason is that Jesus died and that he didn't stay dead, right? But we can't get to Easter Sunday without sitting in Good Friday first. And there's a reason we call it Good Friday. It was our greatest good that was worked out on the cross that day. Like I said, suffering makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> we avoid, I avoid thinking about Jesus on the cross because I think in part because violence is invasive Others' pain is intrusive, and if we truly sat still and thought about this, then it would lead us to think about our own sin. But then, we can't stay focused on our sin because we have to realize the whole reason Jesus did this was for love. Not only was Jesus the expected messianic king and the suffering servant, he was all of that because he was the love of God made incarnate. Why did he suffer? Because he loved us. John 13, 1 prefaces the entire, uh, the last few days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion like this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Dane Ortland says of this verse, this is what loving to the end really meant. Passing through the horror of the cross and drinking it down the flood of filth, the centuries of sin, all that is revolting even in our eyes. This reminded me of the scene in Black Panther. Um, hopefully you guys have seen it. <laughs> he has to drink uh, the serum in order to get his uh, powers, his Black Panther powers, stripped away so that he can fight for the throne. And King T'Challa drinks the serum, strips away his power, and he gives up his kingship um, so then he battles his challenger for the throne of all Wakanda. And, and he too, like Jesus, ends up being defeated. Um, the man he's fighting throws him off a cliff, which is great. But unlike T'Challa, drinking the cup of God's wrath and being killed for his people was Jesus' plan all along. For love, he willingly stayed on the cross and endured it. For love, he laid down his life before the challenger, sin and death, 
for love, he refused to save himself. And I think this is why Jesus rebukes Peter here in Mark 8, 33, when he is telling him he doesn't have to die, right? Peter's mind was on worldly salvation, but Jesus' heart was set on reconciliation with his rebellious beloved, and he would not step away from the road ahead of him. So God knew we didn't need another good teacher. We didn't need another political revolutionary. We didn't need a distant savior. Who we needed was exactly who we got, a king who laid aside his crown for thorns, who suffered in our place, a friend whose love could not stop him until he had loved us to the end. So we've seen here in Mark, first, the missed Messiah, and second, the manifest Messiah. So now what, right? We have to think about our response to this question, who do you say that I am? And his question isn't just for the first disciples. It's for everyone who comes face to face with our sin and the person of Christ. But I was thinking, like, why would Jesus make them and us make this choice to begin with? It might seem a little too soon, right? Like too pushy, too real, too uncomfortable. But I think in reality, this question shows us his heart, that he loves us too much to stay undecided. He pursues us and he doesn't let us fall away into this apathy. So if God is tugging on your heart, listen, don't turn a deaf ear to his call. It's not merely enough to just observe Jesus from afar. You need to get in it with him. You need to experience him. You need to take a stance on who he is to you. There's a time for observation, but there's also a time to respond. And it's not simply a matter of your truth or my truth, right? If we believe the Bible, it's life or death. C.S. Lewis, the author, popularized an argument for making a choice about Jesus that just ruled out this idea that he's like a good teacher. He said, Jesus made all these claims to divinity, and you can't just dismiss him as a good man. Lewis put it this way. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus did not intend to leave the option of him being just a good teacher open to us. He wanted us to see these claims of who he is and make a choice that required us to be all in. In uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring and Movie, there's this great scene where um, Samwise Gamgee, who's the guy in the front, he refuses to let his best friend, Mr. Frodo, continue alone on his quest to Mordor, which is just the most dangerous place. After realizing that Frodo, guy in the boat, tried to leave the rest of the group behind, Sam just jumps into the river. He can't swim, okay, but he's just going for the boat. And when he finally gets to him, this is their conversation. It would be the death of you to come with me, Sam, said Frodo, and I cannot have borne that. Not as certain as being left behind, said Sam, but I'm going to Mordor. I know that well enough, Mr. Frodo, of course you are, and I'm coming with you. So what sticks out to me from the story is that uh, for Sam, his relationship with Mr. Frodo was more important to him even than his own safety. Like the rest of his life would forever be changed because he made that decision to jump into the water. 
that moment can never be taken back, right? He was saying, I'm all in with you no matter what. And I think this is a pretty good picture of what happens when we respond to Jesus's call on our hearts, right? He's the one calling us and we're responding. Even if we don't completely understand who he is, like Peter, he welcomes us no matter how small or blundering our faith is. So, okay, once you're all in, once you've made this choice, and I know a lot of you have, um, would say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and that is so great to hear, but we, it does make a difference in our life, right? It's not just a one-time event that we never have to think about again. Um, and I'm just going to look at two ways it makes a difference. So first, it makes a difference in our lives that Jesus is our King, and it makes a difference that He is our friend as well. So when you make a choice or when you respond to Christ's calling and you name him as your king, your Lord, he's there for now your authority, right? And this is an appropriate response, right? It only makes sense to swear fealty in a way to the one who moved heaven and earth to free you from slavery. Jesus invites us into a relationship with him that doesn't simply result in our minds being changed. Um, it doesn't, it, it results in our hearts being renewed and redeemed. It results in a complete worldview shift. No longer is he simply an accessory to your life. He is your life. He, the one who lost his life so you could live, is your treasure, the one person you orient your life around. And this kind of faith impacts how we live. And it, it kind of builds up slowly, right? We have the Holy Spirit helping us to change, to be more like Christ. But it impacts how we love, sacrificially, right? How we repent, honestly. How we confront others, lovingly and humbly. How we worship, joyfully. How we pray, habitually. It impacts how we choose to spend our Sundays. How, who we choose to date, love, and marry. How we spend our weekends, what we do with our money. How we interact with the person on the opposite side of the political spectrum from us how we think and talk about our bodies, what medium we consume, how we set boundaries, how we take care of our health, what we look at on the internet. Jesus as Lord means that we offer up all of our lives, not just the parts that we're willing to let other people see. Now, now are you uncomfortable? <laughs> I am too. It's so important to realize that Jesus wants you all in, but at the same time, you need to hear that he did it first. He gives us all of him too. And he's not surprised by any of our dark places, our fears, and our failures. He died for them. What we're getting is someone who knows us perfectly, knows every icky part of us, and yet loves us completely. Another person jumped into the water after someone he loved. Not Samwise, but Simon Peter. Matthew 14 tells us that when Peter saw Jesus exercising his creator's power, walking on the stormy sea, Peter asked Jesus to call him out so that he could also walk out to him. He so loved and trusted Jesus that for a moment, all he could see was his Savior's face. That was an all-in moment, and it's beautiful. But then the wind and the waves and, and the, the scary deep beneath him Right, it caused his heart to fail, and he began to sink. But the strong arm of his king, his friend Jesus, lifted him up from beneath the waves of doubt and sin to safety. Friends, Jesus isn't just our king. He's also our perfect friend. 
and he's with us in suffering and sin. Trusting in Jesus as your suffering Savior, as your Messiah, means that when you go through suffering, you can have hope in and through it. Not only does he take care of our biggest problem, right, our rebellious, sinful hearts, he never leaves us alone to struggle. He enters into our struggle, just like he entered into our punishment on the cross. When we look at Isaiah 53 and see Christ as a suffering servant, it makes us realize that when we struggle, when, when you're betrayed, when you're rejected, when you feel alone in a crowd of people, when the world is just too much for you, he's with you. He is the best 3 a.m. friend, right? The one you can go to in any crisis, any panic attack, any pain or hardship. He knows, he cares, and he's powerful enough to work in and through your hurt. Not only that, but he knows what it's like to be tempted, yet he never gave in. And that power and that compassion is yours. So friends, Jesus tells us that he is not just a good teacher. He is not a political revolutionary. He is not a disinterested, far off monarch. He is the king of the universe who couldn't stand not being with his people, who became one of them, living a perfect life and dying a perfect death so that they might live. He's our Lord, our friend, and he is more and better than we could ever imagine. So what do you say? He's asking you, who do you say that he is? And if you're still figuring it out, that's okay. But know that he's pursuing you. Go to scripture, go to prayer, go to reflection, go to friends, go to King Jesus. He won't let you down. All right, friends, let me just pray. Lord God, thank you that you are with us, um, that you took our sin and punishment because you couldn't stand to not be with us, that you love us. Um, and I pray that you would work that truth into our heart and that you would bring us to a place of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.